This is Aaron from the show. First of all, thank you for listening. Once you finish listening to this episode, do us a solid. Go ahead and give us a rating and write a review of the show. This lets us know that we're doing a good job and helps other people find us. And speaking of other people, if you know someone who might enjoy the show, we would love it if you told them about it. We can be found at gttgp.com. There's tons of stuff on there. You can learn more about us. There's an episode guide. And of course, you can find our social media pages where we love geeking out with our listeners. Now, let's get to the good part. So anyway, let's go back to this new flick sync we got going on here, which is from your favorite movie and mine, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <sighs> yeah. Which is described as one of Halliday's favorite films and perhaps the most beloved geek film of all time. Now, what I don't get about this statement is that on the surface, the film is not really a geek film. To me, it's more of a film that's beloved by geeks, and that's not the same. I, you know what? There are... I, 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 what? What? I think it is a geek film. I think like there are enough quotes in it and enough bits of humor. You're using coconut. What? That it kind of has that wink, wink, nod, nod, know what I mean kind of situation that you can, that you can reference this. You know, like when you get hurt and you go, oh, it's just a flesh wound. And somebody gets that. I think I think when you've got a geek film, you've got something that somebody gets really excited about. And there are a lot of anchors within that thing, whatever that, that focus is, be it a movie or a book or something like that, where you can kind of pivot around it and then see if you can connect with somebody else. And it can be just something quick and short. Like, for example, if I was to say, if someone asks if you're a god, you say, what? Yes. Exactly. So you and I just had a Ghostbusters moment, right? I have basically put out the signal to say, are you cool? And you came back and said, yes, I'm cool like you because I have seen that movie. I get it. And now we both have sort of a camaraderie sunk into an experience with Ghostbusters. But what makes a film a geek film? That's hard to say. That, that's why I'm saying that, like, I don't know what, what he means by geek film. I'll, I'll use I'll use a TV show as an example. The IT right. crowd. That to me is a geek TV show because the focus is on these two kind of nerdy geeky guys. Don't blur that though. Geek and nerd are two very different things. A nerd gets caught up in the technicalities, the excitement of the depth of technicality of something. A geek comes from the term geek as in something that that people come and are enthralled about and obsessed over but not at a necessarily nerd level but rather in a thing that again you've shared with somebody like geeks were people who bit the heads off of chickens at fairs and carnivals like you would go to see the geek and then you and your friend would have had that experience of seeing the geek bite the head off the chicken thus you had a shared geek experience so the IT crowd is a, is a nerd comedy, whereas Monty Python and the Holy Grail is a geek comedy. You're defining geek in a different way than I was. I'm not sure how you were defining geek, but I'm definitely saying that there is a line between the difference between geek and nerd. So according to the Googles, 
the Googles. The word geek is a slang term originally used to describe eccentric or non-mainstream people. Mm-hmm. In current use, the word typically connotes an expert or an enthusiast or a person obsessed with a hobby or intellectual pursuit with a general mm-hmm. pejorative meaning of a peculiar person, especially one who is perceived to be overly intellectual, unfashionable, boring, or socially awkward. Now, look up the definition for nerd. Nerd. Prone to revenge. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> nerds! Get those nerds! Nerd! Nerd! Nerd is a person seen as overly intellectual, obsessive, introverted, or lacking social skills. Yeah. You see how it's crossing the definitions there? Well, it's literally using the same words. I would argue that there is definitely a difference. Geeks are excited and uh, maybe even obsessive about the content of something. Nerds are obsessive about the in-depth detail of something. I, I like the idea that that you could say that a geek is an extroverted obsessive about some sort of point of content, whereas a nerd is introverted about a point of content. I would, I would bend my definition to, to that to kind of keep it in line, but I think that there's a common misperception of the difference between the two. And if you go to the dictionary, dictionary is going to define what the common thing is. But I think if you dig a little bit deeper beyond the dictionary term, that the, the differences between the two will suss out in that way. Now, that said, like, for example, a nerd would be obsessed about the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail and be able to repeat all the lines and know about the characters. A nerd who obsessed about Monty Python and the Holy Grail might be obsessed with the costumes and whether or not they are period or, you know, the technical details of the film. Does that, does that follow? Are you tracking with me there? I'm trying. <laughs> I, I think if I was to say something along the lines of like uh, Star Trek, that you do have a nerd and geek cross-culture there appreciation for it. Okay, so here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. You and I do a podcast about Ready Player One. Right. Are we geeking or are we nerding? We're, that's a great question. Well, I think that we are geeking when we are talking about the excitement of the book and the different parts of the book that we really dig and that we share in common. I think we are nerding when we are getting into the nitty-gritty details and arguing about minuscule bullshit. Like the origin of the numbers? <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Yeah, like the origin of the numbers. A geek might be, don't give a fuck about the numbers. I just really loved the book, and I really liked the quotes, and I love the references, and I really dig the references. But yeah, nerding would be like diving into the details of it and and arguing the the differences for example um we can geek about how much we love the game tempest but we can nerd about how the book didn't go into the actual details for the score and exactly what you would have to do in order to get the 40 points you know that's basically if, if i was to go um excuse me but you know push glasses up uh, actually, what you would really need to do is you've got to get over 160,000, and then it's got to be between this number and this number in this position, and then you've got a choice of over 20 different codes for the last... That's me nerding. Okay. I think we've been nerding about the definitions. <laughs>
If anyone disagrees with me, uh, go to Facebook and disagree with me. I, I have my personal definition for nerd and geek, but I would be curious to see if, if uh, people agree or if they disagree and how. Okay. So I'll, I throw that out there. Let's go back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, I was kind of hoping we wouldn't, but I all know. Right. But uh, perhaps the most beloved geek film of all time. And did you know that all the exterior castle shots were the exact same castle? <laughs> just, just from different vantage points? No, I didn't know that, but that's pretty brilliant, actually, because it means that they go to the castle for one day, shoot all of the castle scenes, regardless of whatever order it's in. They got that shit in the can. They can move on to the next set of scenes, wherever that location is. That's brilliant. That's brilliant, actually. And I have been to that castle. You have? I have. It was actually, I was not expecting to be at that castle, but in between two whiskey regions in Scotland, we stopped off at the dune castle and mm -hmm. i was like well this looks familiar yeah and then like what you you rolled in with oh. your car and some dude said halt who goes there who goes there <laughs> i did not have any coconuts negative 100 points for you but yeah i've been to that castle dune castle in scotland and it was kind of cool to be there even though it, it was not really a movie that I would say I wanted to watch again right away, but why? Well, hold on a second. Wait, 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 wait. So you you did not you did not want to see the movie again. You did not find it. Was it was it just so good that once was enough? I walked away from that movie feeling like the humor must be very dated. Like maybe hmm. thirty years ago, that was hilarious. Or maybe people right. feel like there's some peer pressure involved and that they have to say they like it and then they train themselves to like it. But I I just, I didn't get it. And since I've seen that movie, I've, I've watched The Life of Brian and that one I thought was better, mm -hmm. but still mostly like, meh. And I watched some months ago the first episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Mm -hmm. And when I say I watched it, I watched it in 10-minute intervals because I kept falling asleep. And sometime in the last week, I tried watching it the second episode, and I just turned it off. I was so bored. Yeah, it's it's very, it's dry. It's, it's uh, I don't want to say British humor because it's very, you know, uh, that's, it's, it's really kind of prejudice, I guess. <laughs> Against uh, British people. <laughs> yes, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's this very sort of, how can I take something that is incredibly absurd, and then how can I approach it in the driest, deadpan way possible? And it's that conflict between deadpan delivery and completely absurd that there's that tension that makes certain people laugh, I think. I say certain people because I... First off, this movie was my first introduction into into the Monty Python troupe, right? Mm -hmm. I'd never heard of them before. My friends were like, this is a great movie. You've not seen this. You've got to see this. I had like three or four of my friends. We watched it in someone's basement, and it just was so long. And I don't think I laughed once. <laughs> and then we got to the end, and I'm sorry for spoilers, but... Just as they get to the fucking castle and they're about to invade, then the police come in and arrest all the actors. So it's a complete fourth wall break. And then that's the end of the fucking movie. 
I felt like somebody had spent five hours of my life. Like that was a joke. Like how could I, how could I consume? How could I waste five hours of Chris's time just for nothing? What, aren't you glad the movie isn't five hours? Well, it felt like five hours. It really does. I mean, it just goes the fuck on. How did people get through that movie without smartphones? <laughs> but, you know, it just, I think I get why people liked it, because if you liked the troupe, there was tons of stuff that was just so, it just kind of spoke to that. It's almost like they were speaking a language that if if you had followed their comedy and, and really dug it and enjoyed it, that this was just chock full of it, right? And it was just a lot of jokes that people would get, a type of humor that people would connect to or had already connected to. So my introduction to this sort of humor, this type of humor, uh, I just felt like I was on the outside of an in-joke and it just wasn't funny because I was missing something. Mm. And what I was missing was, you know, all of the other things that that troupe had done that that was funny that was kind of nestled into the humor of this movie. So so maybe Monty Python is more of a, a humor based on the relationship with them because yeah, like the, maybe. the one-offing it doesn't seem to be enough. Like, And maybe I liked Life of Brian a little more than Holy Grail because I'd already seen Holy Grail. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I liked Life of Brian better as well. Uh, but I think it's because it was... Um, more budget? <laughs> <laughs> more budget. It definitely had a bigger budget, didn't it? <laughs> fucking coconut shells. So <laughs> I couldn't even afford a fucking horse. Um, and that, somehow I get that that makes it even funnier. Is that they couldn't afford a horse, so they just had some dude with coconuts, and and that's you know you're so poor you don't even have a horse, and yet you're a king. No, with the life of Brian, it felt very. Uh, what is it when you shit on a religion? What's that called? Blasphemous. Uh, Thanks for helping me out there. I really appreciate that fill in. Uh, <laughs> you're really I, quick to. I had no idea really what you were to talking the draw. about. Like, Thanks. What? I don't know. Like shitting on religion? You mean like what happens every day? Uh, it was irreverent and blasphemous. And it was done in a sort of a humorish kind of, you know, the funny sort of way, like, like it, it not just not just shitting on a religion and insulting it, but but just kind of going, this is how it could have gone. Like, this is what could have been happening on the side. Right. And uh, it, I don't know. I, I dug that. Like, I kind of enjoyed that humor because I'm sick. Like, And that, then at the end, when they're all being crucified and, and they're singing, always look on the bright side. Look on the bright side. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And plus, I thought the opening scene was hilarious. Oh, remind me what the, the opening three, scene was. What, three wise men come and they give gifts to you know, the baby Brian and they realize they're in the wrong tent and they come back and snap it. <laughs> <laughs> here's this dude that's just lived his entire fucking life in the shadow of some other guy and here he's doing like everything he can to 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 make his way through life uh yeah no it's i i enjoyed that like i found that was way funnier than than monty python and the holy grail but here's the thing though i know people who know monty python and the holy grail verbatim like i don't but i know people who do so I get I get why they would come to this because this is kind of one of those movies that just has a shitload of quotes that you instantly have an in with that you have something in common with you almost have like an instant camaraderie with like it's just a flesh wound it's just a flesh wound precisely so and, and it's funny because I can think of like little quotes off of this movie and I didn't even like this fucking movie all that much yeah I didn't 
really like it that much either. I mean, like it, it had its moments, you know, mm-hmm. but it just didn't grab me like that. Yeah, I agree. There could have been like a bazillion other movies that would have worked, but I also get why they did this. I get, I get that the book's not going to accommodate all of my personal tastes. So we've only watched it once, <laughs> uh, or I've only watched it once. I don't know how many times mm-hmm. you've watched it. Maybe three or four times. Yeah, like I, I came back to it for the sake of other people. So Parsville says that he's watched Holy Grail 157 times over the last six years. Exactly 157 times. So I guess kudos for keeping a diary of how many times you've watched it. But that means that he watched that movie, I think that comes out about twice a month. Twice a month during his lifetime? Is that what you're getting Twice at? a month in the last six years. Okay. But he was like 18 by the end of the book, right? And so didn't he start this shit at... It doesn't really matter. I'm just saying, like, could you watch that movie two times a month for six years in a row? If someone paid me. Sure. You know, I, I guess. Yes, I could. Would I want to? No, okay, but I could. Uh, let, let, me try, let me throw this at you. Mm-hmm. If somebody were offering you $240 billion to watch that movie, I mean, and watch other things, mm-hmm. would that be a strong enough motivator? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That would be the equivalent of if you would pay me. Yeah. But here's the thing is he didn't know that that was going to be a part of the test, obviously. The, you know, this in the book is just kind of like, oh, wow, it's just, it's that movie. I know. I happen to have watched it 157 times. He might have missed so it he, the same way he missed The Tempest. Yeah, precisely. So, you know. Fucking idiot. He watched it 157 times, watched it two times a month for six years because he liked the movie that much. Maybe he should have watched it one and a half times a month and maybe tried out some Tempest. Fucking. Oh, <sighs> you're saying he should have maybe pulled back on the Holy Grail a little? Maybe. Do a little bit of Tempest. Yeah, I can see that. He describes going through the movie and all the rest of the high five that are alive are all watching and giggling. And I'm just like, it's not really a giggle worthy movie. There are some giggle points. I don't know if I'd call it a giggle fit or a burst of laughter. But again, it's a movie where you can share a sense of humor. I I would like this kind of humor. I would say it's chuckle worthy. Mm hmm. And I'd, I'd even say, I'd even say this is an interesting example of how when you talk about kind of like an in community or uh, being on the in crowd, right? And Gunters have sort of an in crowd that being in the in crowd shapes a lot about you. You adhere to a mold that allows you to be accepted by the society you're trying to be in with. And in this situation with this in crowd, you couldn't get away with not liking Holy Grail. That's why, like, part of me kind of thinks that many people like it purely out of peer pressure. Well, I think when you've got people to relate to that have seen it and and that you can share that experience with, sometimes it's not the experience. It's the shared experience with others and the commonality and then being included into this, this group. I, I can say the same about Rocky Horror Picture Show. When I first saw Rocky Horror... I didn't like it. Like, I'd, I'd heard all about it, and people were like, oh, it's fantastic. It's and there's, like, a whole set of dialogue. What I realized, first the first time I watched it was horribly uncomfortable because I got, like, some friends from high school, like, well, I've been told we should watch this movie. It's really good. And it was one of those things that we kind of, like, watched it in the middle of the afternoon. And afterwards, we were kind of like, what the F? Well, that was, that was kind of awkward. Now, to people who are kind of listening to this going, oh, well, fuck Chris. He doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. 
I went back and I watched it again. I've seen it dozens of times since. And here's what I've realized. First off, I do love the movie. I enjoy the movie. And what I also find here is that part of that enjoyment is sharing the movie with others who also love the movie. Like for Halloween last year, we had friends come over and we did the whole rice and... Nice. You know, everything that you throw at the screen and you toss out the lines. We had like a whole lineup of shit that we did and we sang the music together. It's so, you know, we had this sort of community theater thing in my living room. It was fucking awesome. And that's what kind of brought people together about this movie is that it was such a bad movie that everyone agreed that it would be fun to make fun of it, which made the movie even better. Like the movie's so bad, it's good. Yeah. Yeah, it did like a whole 360. It just went down the road of bad and then came right back up the other side into excellent because it allowed a community to sort of form their response to this otherwise kind of crappy film, you know. Um, but don't get me wrong, like the, the music's are the music's catchy, but it goes on a little bit long as far as the movie is concerned. And it just kind of meanders like our shows. Um mm-hmm. Uh, but but the just there is that it allowed a, allows a community to get together and make fun of it. No other film has done that, like like Rocky Horror, not a one. And um and that's what makes it great. Like I was my first time watching it was not in a group of people who had seen it, and and you know allowed me to share in that experience. The first time uh, I and, saw it was in like a theater. I believe it was in Boston, and I had you know gone with a you know a large group of people. Mm-hmm. Had no idea what I was getting into. I was going because other people oh, were going. So you were a Rocky Horror virgin. I was at that point. Did they pick on you? Uh, I would never admit that. Okay. <laughs> I, if somebody says, Who, <laughs> who's mean, never been here before? You're... It's like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you that. It's like, like, be, oh. it's like, it's like going to a stand-up comedy show and sitting in the front row. Right, 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 right. Fuck that shit. <laughs> So did they have like the newspaper and the water guns? Oh yeah, and the rice and all that shit. Oh yeah, yeah. And arrow points to the slut. Uh, uh, yeah, I remember being at in the theater. I'm like, what? What the fuck is going on? Like, why don't they just sit down and let the movie go? <laughs> did you feel like you were on the outside of a ninja? A little bit, but I eventually caught on, and I guess like figured out like, oh, this is the thing. Yeah, the second time you go, you're in. Yeah. The first time you go, you're on the outside of the in joke. It's not going to be as fun. You're going to have that. Ex- you're going to have that experience, which is why the fuck won't they let the movie play? Yeah, trying to enjoy this perfectly good film. <laughs> why are they interrupting it? And that's that's how this film got good. So, th- did you go a second time? I, I definitely went a few times. This was part of like a youth group thing, and they mm-hmm. went like every year. Right. So I just kept going because. For one, because they got to see friends and right. partake in this really weird thing. And eventually I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. I, I could go see Rocky Horror. There was some allure at that age to be like, okay, we're, we're going to go into town and watch a movie at midnight. Right. And we're going to watch a movie about transvestites kind of doing orgy scenes in a pool that involves space aliens and, and raising the dead and elbow fucking. And elbow fucking, right. All right. I mean, it's just, it's just like, it, it, it feels like, you know, you, you know, somebody put a bunch of just random 
random shit on a on a spinny wheel and said, "What are we gonna do next?" Whizz. Okay, now we're gonna eat somebody. <laughs> Work that into the scene, right? Now he's gonna ride a bike, but uh, aren't we inside the house? Doesn't fucking matter. Wait, are we in the kitchen? Make him break out of the out of the ice storage. Doesn't matter. It it felt like they dialed that shit in every fucking scene, right? Like they just pulled a random card and said, "Well, we got to work this into the scene." Yep. It worked out brilliantly, yeah. but still, we spent a lot of time not talking about Ready Player One. <laughs> I I think I think the correction here is we're spending a lot of time not talking about Holy Grail. Okay, fair enough. All right, so take us to the next point. So at this point in time. We know that 15 Sixers are still playing Tempest and three are in the Grail mm -hmm. simulation. Mm -hmm. And Parswell's not thrilled about that. He reaches the final scene, as you alluded to before, the assault on the French castle when the fourth wall is broken. And he notes the pattern. First gate required him to reenact the movie, being war games. Mm -hmm. The second one was to play the game Black Tiger. So, mm -hmm. so far, the third gate has contained both. So there's... Yeah. So there's... You know, three being the magic number, we still got one more stage left to go. The movie Holy Grail finishes, screen fades to black, even with mm -hmm. the silly organ music, which I didn't remember. Dun, 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 dun. No, I guess that's not the organ music. I don't I'll know. I'll play in the background right now. Ah, uh, oh. Oh, now I remember. Yeah, that's the good stuff right there. Yeah, no, that's so familiar to me. Totally familiar. I remember it now. And while this organ music is playing so boisterously in our ears, the following appears on his display. Congratulations, you have reached the end. Ready Player One. Ready Player One. That's almost like where he got the name of the book from. Yeah, kind of. It's fitting, right? You kind of go full circle. Ready Player One. So he finds himself in the same room that the Ark of the Covenant is stored in. No. Wrong movie. Oh. Ugh. But a, a room about the size of a warehouse, you know, oak paneled. And so in the center of this room is an older high-end Oasis rig. And mm -hmm. it's surrounded by over 100 glass tables with various video game systems, consoles. And each one had racks with a complete collection of peripherals, controllers, software, all that shit. Mm-hmm. And they were set up kind of in a, in a time frame, right? Yeah. He, like starting back from the beginning, almost like the evolution of man. But in this case, it's like the evolution of game. Yeah. He said it was like roughly in chronological order or um, year of origin. And he goes through a extensive but n not complete list of the different devices. A PDP-1, an Altair 8800, an IMSA 8080, an Apple One, right next to an Apple Two. Atari 2600, Commodore PET, and Intellivision, several different TRS-80s, an Atari 400 800, a ColecoVision, TI-99-4, a Sinclair ZX-80, Commodore 64, various Nintendo and Sega game systems, and this part is weird, the entire lineage of Macs and PCs. There's a th then he says Playstations and Xboxes, and then the Oasis console. But the entire lineage of Macs and PCs, like, what does that even mean? Well, like, Macs do have sort of a lineage, right? Sure. So that you can definitely d distinguish over time Macs, MacBooks, you know, desktop Macs, for example. It's the part where we get to PCs, 
I could see if we're talking about like a lineage of PCs, like a, an example PC from a given year and then moving up through a number of years. Like that's, that would be a lot. That would really be a lot. So, and does it include laptops? I mean, like it says there's, all, there's over a hundred. It's like naming 20 sandwiches and then going the entire collection of potato chips <laughs> known to man. And you'd be like, well, okay, hold, hold the fucking phone. You've really just skimmed over a lot of shit that outnumbers a handful of sandwiches, right? I mean... <laughs> Tell me more about the potato chips. But I get you there. Tell me more about the potato chips. So how many of these systems have you had? Like, did any of these sort of strike a, ah, in you? I know that my family owned, in this list, the, we had an Apple II uh, okay. prior to my existence. There was an Atari 2600. Uh, and, uh, well, prior to your existence, they were playing an Atari 2600 with a, you, while you were just a, a glint in their eyes? I was too young to be playing video games. Oh, okay. And we had the original Nintendo. Well, hold on a second. Were your parents like, did your parents play games? No. Did they play 2600 Atari? No? So they... My older brother did. Oh, okay. Okay. We had the original Nintendo, and we had the 16-bit Sega. All right. And we had various Macs and PCs. So of this list, I didn't do too terribly. No, that's pretty good, actually. But uh, for me, I had I had the TI-99. That was my first programming machine. So I was programming in BASIC on a TI-99. I did have a Commodore at one point. Didn't have any TRS-80s. I did have it a very early PC. Uh, and then, you know, beyond that, I've had Xboxes. Uh, I had the uh, ColecoVision system. The cool thing about the Coleco system was that there was a, an adapter that you could use that you could pop into the front and it would allow you to play Atari games. So it wasn't just ColecoVision. It was, you know, by my gateway to really cool Atari games mm -hmm. too. ColecoVision, that's where I got really good at Donkey Kong. Like I made it to like, level 39, which was crazy impossible for me then. Probably not super impressive to anyone right now. So I really didn't do Nintendo. Like Nintendo was not my, still not my thing. <gasps> I know. I know. I think I've owned one in Nintendo in my entire life. And that was the one with, you know, like the controllers where you could play bowling and shit like that. Right. And that was Man, a more recent. The Wii? Yeah. Yeah. The Nintendo Wii. Yeah. I yeah, never owned right. that one, but. I like the original NES. I have the NES Classic Mini. And I just thought it was really interesting that this is the first time Nintendo had been mentioned in this book. Really? It hadn't been... Well, hmm. Think about it. Yeah, man. I can see that. Nintendo... Let's see. When I was first introduced to Nintendo, it was with a Japanese, a Japanese family that had moved in across the street. They didn't know a lick of English. So my brother and I would go over there and, and hang with the kids, and we would slowly teach them English. Uh, and they had, like, the earliest version of Nintendo. It was not called Nintendo, but it was a Nintendo. Um, you know, it looked identical. You know, it had the little thing that, the little little L-shaped door that popped open that you slid the cartridge into, all that. But we didn't realize that that was going to become Nintendo, the popular Nintendo we all know and love. But that was middle school, man. That was uh, that was elementary school. So that was Ohio. That was a long time ago. Long fucking time ago. We're talking about like 83, 84. So then I guess Nintendo kind of popped into the scene 
maybe 86 or 87 ish. I could be a little bit off, but, but yeah. Yeah. So then Nintendo hits. Yeah. So that is kind of weird. And maybe I've missed it, but I've just not heard a lot of Nintendo references. Yeah. I, I feel like, I don't know. And maybe this is my own ignorance or just the fact that I was at just a little bit too young to know all this stuff. But I feel like Nintendo was like a little bit of the game changer for video games. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So it's it not being mentioned up until this point in this book just feels wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't even really hit like any particular, just as various Nintendo and Sega game systems. And Nintendo and Sega competed. They were out at the same time. They were kind of that next level. The Sega Master System was what I had, and my my neighbor had like the Nintendo, the core Nintendo system. So we would go back and forth playing video games at each other's houses. But I never really liked Nintendo. I was a Sega guy. Sega! Oh, you were one of those guys. I always had to be different. Yeah. And then they did like that Sega 16, Sega 64. At that point, I just, bleh, I had moved on. But anyhow. Yeah, so I had had a number of these back when they were cool. Yeah, now it's not so much, huh? Not so much, although it would be cool to see a room full of all of these these systems. Maybe not the full lineage of PCs, but everything else. Yeah, I, I could do without those. You know, it it would be kind of neat. It would almost be like a little bit of a, I think it, it described as like a museum exhibit. It would be kind of cool just to see like, just how they changed aesthetically, mm-hmm. you know, like not even getting into like the graphics of the games, but we're just talking like an evolution of, of marketing yeah, for the device. Yeah. yeah. Well, and just like how technology changed and how they could get things into a smaller package and just like what was considered cool looking aesthetics when they came out. I, I, I think that's kind of interesting. That would make for an awesome museum. Absolutely. So he looks down at his avatar, and he is no longer a knight. He is returned back to Parzival. That, and true. he has identified the room, not because he had seen any photos of it, but because it had been described or in great detail by the movers that were hired to clear the place out after Halliday's death, quoting from the book. And he recognizes that, that this is the place. This is an oval-shaped ring that the egg... Literally all of the machines and everything was laid out in the shape of an egg. So he's standing kind of in the middle of the egg. And that is when he identifies the fact that the egg is in this room. It's hidden here somewhere. End scene. Or end end chapter. Well, I I like the fact that, that he recites the words from the first riddle. That we've kind of come for a full circle. He is in the place. He's... He has found the three hidden keys to open the three secret gates. And he has been the errant that was tested for worthy traits. And he had the skills to survive those straits. And he has reached the end where the prize awaits. And that is where he has identified himself to be, is at the end where the prize awaits. Literally in an egg. Literally in an egg of technology. I can't love that enough. It's so sad right now, though. Because there's so little book left. Yeah. Oof. Gosh. Well, we got three more chapters, I maybe? I got two more chapters. Yeah. It's uh, 39 is the final chapter. Oh. We're going to have to figure out something else to do. We'll figure out something to tide us over until Ready Player Two comes out. Right, right. 
Hopefully, that'll be soon. It would be nice if that came out, like, next month. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great? Would you do me a favor, Aaron? Would you, uh, would you get a hold of Ernest and tell him to kind of, I don't know, get on it? <laughs> no, so, so here's the thing, though. Which, huh. which one of us is going to read the book immediately, and which one of us is going to read it chapter by chapter? You know what? I, I call dibs on reading it all the way through. No, 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 no. We're going to have to both do this chapter by chapter. Oh, God, that's going to be the worst. It's going to suck. I'm going to cheat on that diet, man. I'm cheating. One of us has to read it chapter by chapter. The other one can just zoom ahead because, you know, you're, you're going to have we're going to have people who who are reading it chapter by chapter with us. And we're going to have people who zoom ahead. But ultimately, there has to be one of the two of us that kind of knows the future and is holding back, right? I think we just need to get a volunteer. <laughs> we bring in a third person that we have to force to read one chapter a week. Look, I, I, I think we rub shoulders with too many people in the right circles to not just plow through that book in an evening. Yeah, I know it. It's going to be hard not to just get the audio and, and hit play and just sit back and Nine hours later. It's going to be like being a vegan in a barbecue. Sooner or later, you're going to chomp down on that hot dog mm-hmm. or that steak or the yeah the brisket. Yeah, I agree. It's it's going to be rough. It's going to be really you, rough. You can't, you can't be on a diet during the holidays, my friend. Nope, absolutely not. So have we reached the end of this chapter? Yeah. Yeah. So just to recap, we played a game. We played a movie. We found ourselves amidst a bunch of video game consoles. Yeah. And yeah. if anybody's still listening after we said we don't like Monty Python the Holy Grail, congratulations. <laughs> you think people dropped off. What What these fucking bastards don't like Monty Python on the Holy I think there'll be plenty of people that'll be like, yeah, I, I didn't like it either. Well, <laughs> we just didn't want to say so. Re- remember that word you couldn't think of when it, about shitting on religions? Blasphemy? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, thanks again for helping me with I that. I feel like some people are going to think that not liking Monty Python and the Holy Grail is blasphemous. You know what? And to that, I would say, if we liked everything in this book, this would not be an interesting podcast. Just wouldn't. That's not necessarily about liking everything in the book, but it's not liking one of the references in the book. Well, that's what I meant. Yeah. And to be fair, there's some references that I just fucking don't know, man. I I get it. I, I get it. That's And there's a lot of references that... I didn't know before the book, and then I got into them after having read it. I know. Brazil. Yeah, I love Brazil. It's the best. Fuck. Fuck Brazil. Directed by Patsy, God the manservant. Oh, my God. Honestly, that's, that, is one of the, that is one of the most obtuse movies I have ever seen in my life. And I can't say that I'm a better person for having seen it. I can say that uh, uh, I lost two hours of my life to that movie. This is so odd. Such a fucking odd movie. And this book brought that movie to the surface, you know, like a, like a, a fatberg in a sewer. A what in a sewer? Like a fatberg in a sewer. Fatberg? Uh, oh, wow. Do a search for fatberg and sewer. I'll wait. Fatberg? Like B-E-R-G? Yeah, uh-huh. Fatberg in a sewer. I don't know if I like where this is going. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's... <laughs> 
Neither do people. Neither do the people who have to clean it out. But is anyhow, it, you know, just is do, this like just do this, a big chunk? Do the search. Of, is this a big chunk of like grease? That's ew. Tell me what you're saying. I see a big chunk of solidified grease in a sewer. Yeah, it's like uh, when people use wet wipes to wipe their ass, which does not really disintegrate, and uh, and you've got grease poured down the drain, and you have just greasy bowel stuff. All of that accumulates and collects against the walls and against stuff that's floating. And eventually, eventually what you have is called a fatberg. And it is just giant clogged clog in a sewer that is just this culmination of crap sticking together. And one that they found, I don't remember exactly where it was. I thought it was London, but it, maybe it was somewhere else. I don't know. <laughs> one that they found was the size of a fucking bus. I, ju- I just found this headline. This fatberg is gross. Huge mass in bowels of Detroit sewer is a teachable moment. Gross. It's a teachable moment. How can a teachable moment be gross? Anyhow, <clears throat> right. So, <laughs> what? where did this reference come from? What did I say? Something floated up to the surface like a fat bird. <laughs> gross. All right. Are we done with this? We if we have gotten to a point where we're talking about fatbergs, then yeah, I think I think we've we've reached the we end. can pinch off this fatberg. <laughs> All right. And thus concludes chapter thirty seven. Thank you again for joining us. This is Chris. And this is Aaron. And we will catch you on the next episode of Get to the Good Part. So this is not unusual to have a what what is this called skin flink <laughs> skin flink a skin flick this is a skin flick it's that's the first thing that comes to my mind every time I try to think of this flick flick sink sink a flick sink <laughs> I just want to say skin flick skin flick um, skin flap yeah oh gross.